morning. At this time, the children, you guys can be dismissed. Go with Mr. Jeremy and Miss Lauren. And I do have a quick personal announcement that I would like to make. Um, as most of you know, my wife and I, we are expecting our first child, and I have a little more information to give to you. This week, we learned we are expecting our first baby boy. So that's why uh, my wife and I, we're, we're wearing blue. Um, I am not a Tar Heel fan, uh, but <laughs> yes, amen to that, right? Um, so we are, we are very excited, uh, nervous as well of all the challenges that we know that will bring, but um, excited that God has entrusted us uh, with this little boy. All right, well, have you ever been just at a loss for how other people can like certain things, believe in certain theories, or behave in certain ways? Like, how can anyone like blue cheese? Ugh. I mean, seriously, that stuff is gross. Like, I have ruined more than one chicken wing by dipping it into what I thought was ranch dressing, only to find out that when I put it in my mouth, there was this tangy, putrid taste to it. It was just disgusting. Or I'm sure that, you know, you've heard music, and you thought, oh, how can anyone listen to that stuff? That's not really music, that's just noise. You talk to liberals, and they're like, I can't understand how anyone could be a conservative. You talk to conservatives, and they're like, I can't understand how anyone would be a liberal. Right? When we hold opinions very strongly, oftentimes we're baffled that anyone else thinks differently or behaves differently. Why don't other people just get it? Sometimes we, we just have this sense of frustration. Why can't they see? Each of us has the tendency to assess my way as being the right way. And when we assess my way as being the right way, we are automatically assessing others to have the wrong way, the wrong view, when they differ from us. And when we treat their view as less worthy, less valuable, it's only a small step before we start treating them as less valuable and less worthy. This is why when you're in traffic, you are the only person on the road that knows how to drive properly. Right? Everyone else is an idiot. And, <laughs> and if everyone just drove exactly the way you drive, things would flow a lot smoother, right? We are sure of it. Well, I'll give you a personal uh, example from my own life, something that happened this week. Was anyone dr driving in Winston-Salem uh, this week? Anyone? Uh, Hopefully, were, were you like Monday morning, 9 o'clock, Silas Creek Parkway? Okay, good. Nobody did that. So I was driving, and uh, it, you know, it was around 9 o'clock early in the morning. It was raining. That's a very important detail. It was raining. And uh, I was on a section of the highway where there's like, there's like four or five lanes um, coming up to a couple stoplights, and uh, some of those lanes turn into turn lanes. I was like in the middle lane and needing to turn right. Uh, about a mile and a half or so. I had some time, but I decided I need to go ahead and merge over. And understand that, that I pride myself in being a very good driver, okay? I, I, I had this weird little, I know it's goofy quirk of how when I'm driving, um, you know, my wife's all the time, she's like, what are you thinking about? And I'm just like, I'm, I'm just driving. I'm thinking about driving, you know, I'm thinking about the road. And, and oftentimes I even am, am, am like quizzing myself of, Hmm, if I had to make a sudden move, if I had to make a sudden change of lanes, could I do it without even having to look in my mirrors? You know, I always want to be aware of what's in front of me, what's behind me, what's beside me. And so I pride myself in being a, a, a good driver. Well, I was needing to get over, and so I, I, I checked my mirror, uh, I glanced over at my blind side, blind side, and I start to merge over um, lanes to the right. And I get about a fourth of the way into the next lane and realize, oh, there was a car there in my blind spot that I did not see. And 
fortunately, that driver was being alert, more so than I was, and he was able to get over into the lane uh, beside him so that we averted a collision. And I immediately, as kind of a gesture of, oops, I'm sorry, you know, uh, swung it back into my original lane. And then I began rehearsing this story, my assessment of what happened, and I realized that that other driver didn't have his lights on. Ah, that was the problem. That's why I couldn't see him. It was his fault. It was so easy for me to find blame. And it was amazing how quickly I began just rehearsing this story as if me and the other guy were going to get out and discuss exactly what happened. No, we weren't going to do that. We both had places to go. But I had my own assessment of how I was right and he was wrong for not having his lights on. Of course, I'm sure that he got to work that day and he was like telling everybody, you wouldn't believe what crazy drivers are out there. Let me tell you what happened this morning. This guy just obliviously came over into my lane. When we are confident in our own assessments, we often hold those with other assessments with contempt. They are wrong, and we are right. Well, in today's passage, which I'm not going to tell you where it's at just yet, but in today's passage, Luke says that Jesus tells a story to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Okay, so when it comes to the most important assessment of a human's life, when it comes to the assessment of whether or not they are righteous, that is, whether or not they are right before God, approved by God, this audience that Jesus is speaking to was confident that they had the right assessment of themselves. And therefore, others were wrong. And they treated them with contempt. Jesus is not telling a story about people who trust in themselves. He's telling it to those very people. He's telling it to them face to face. And Luke doesn't give us any more detail of who this crowd is that Jesus is talking to. So was it his disciples? Perhaps. Was it bystanders in the crowd? Perhaps. Was it the religious elite? Who are these people who trust in themselves that they are right before God? Could it be that the enduring words of Christ are speaking to us today? Well, let's say that you have two men. You have John and you have Jack. Now, John is a regular churchgoer. On Sundays... You always expect to see him in the worship service on Sunday mornings. Then you also expect to see him in, in the small group, your life application group, your Sunday school class. And he's known to be a financial giver to the church. He's known to, to always be there volunteering for any of the church activities, any of the church um, programs and outreaches. He's all the time pitching in to help. And, and when he's in his small group, he always seems to have an appropriate scripture to share with the group. He's seen as a family man. John himself comes from a very respected family within the community. He has a beautiful wife and four very bright children. He's a well-respected physician. He's a doctor in the community. And he's often praying with his patients before surgery because he's not ashamed to call himself a Christian. That's John. And then you have Jack. Jack, on the other hand, he came to church once. And he came in late. He seemed kind of grumpy. He kind of stood far off. And it's really because he was uncomfortable in church. Because, you see, church was not his usual social scene. He was much more accustomed to the local bars. And Jack seemed to have lots of family troubles. He, he grew up in a divided home. His dad, at an early age, had abandoned him, his mother, and his sister. And, and Jack always thought that maybe his dad left because of his mom. He kind of blamed his mom for her nagging ways 
because those nagging ways irritated Jack too. And as soon as he graduated high school, after getting through high school by living in the homes of different friends, he, he kind of turned his back on his family and just wanted to set out on him by himself, on his own. Jack was a workaholic, so he actually did pretty well at work. Uh, he managed to actually work his way up and own his own uh, garage, and he was a mechanic. And Jack, uh, at the cost of his driven success for his business, um, also uh, had a broken marriage. Jack's been divorced now eight years. And it's obvious that Jack loves money because people who take their cars into his garage are often suspicious that Jack says there's more wrong with the car than is actually true. Now, there will come a day when both John and Jack stand before God. On that day, who would you rather be? Would you rather be John? Would you rather be Jack? From your assessment, who do you believe God will declare righteous? Righteous. All right. Now turn in the book of Luke, to Luke chapter 18. I'm going to be picking up in verses 10 through 14. In Luke 18, 10 through 14, Jesus tells this story. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I give. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Then Jesus says, I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. We have two men, two prayers, and two destinies. Two men, two prayers, and two destinies. So what's the difference between these two men? The reason I began that story with John and Jack is because when we hear the word Pharisee and the word tax collector, we we tend to go ahead and and side one way or the other. We, we, We tend to see the Pharisees as the opponents of Jesus. And so we immediately kind of reject anything that we see the Pharisees doing in Scripture, and and rightly so. But in that culture that Jesus is speaking to, the Pharisees were seen as very well-respected, moral people. And so when Jesus says this story of a holy man in a holy place, the temple, doing a holy thing, praying, and Jesus declares that what he was doing was unholy, his listeners would have been shocked How come the one man that everybody would look at and say, yep, he's good, he's righteous, God will definitely approve of him, is the one who goes home not justified? And the tax collector who everybody looks at and says, he is so selfish, it's despicable, how come he's the one that Jesus says goes home justified? Now let's talk about that word justified just for a minute. To be justified is to be declared righteous by God. To be declared righteous by God. Maybe you've heard that to be justified, justification, means it's that God treats you just as if you've never sinned. And that's true, but it's not true in the sense that God turns a blind eye and is like, oh, it's okay, we'll just forget that it ever happened. No, it's more than that. God When he justifies a person, he now looks at them and says, You are righteous. You are right. 
You are holy. I am declaring you as such. And that is significant because only God is truly righteous. Only God is holy. Only Jesus was perfectly obedient. But yet God declared this tax collector righteous and the Pharisee unrighteous. How so? How does one get justified by God? Let's look at these two prayers in a little more detail. The Pharisee's prayer in verses 11 and 12 begins in a very unsettling manner. He begins his prayer in verse 11, God, I thank you. God, I thank you. That that is strikingly familiar to the way that I often begin my prayers. God, thank you. What this man is saying, what he says about being unlike other men, he's not saying it's something that he himself is doing or that he himself has done. He's giving God the credit. He's not saying, look what I've done for you, God. He's saying, God, thank you for what you have done in my life. Thank you that you have kept me from going down the path of other wicked men that I know. Now remember, Jesus is telling this story to people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Those people were clearly represented by this Pharisee. So what you must understand is that this Pharisee's appeal before God is what he's resting in, what he's confident in for a good standing before God was the difference in his life from the difference in the lives of others. A difference that his knowledge of Scripture led him to believe God had done. God was the author of why he lived a morally pure life and others like this tax collector did not. That's why he's thanking God. Verse 11, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, that's those who cheat and steal, robbers, Thank you that I'm not like the unjust or adulterers or even like this tax collector. So in his prayer, he gives God a list of things that he's not. Being better than others is what gave him comfort and confidence that he was right before God. What is it that you are resting in? Confident in? when it comes to your approval before God? Are you resting in the fact that, yeah, you're not as good as some, but you're not as bad as most? Surely God is going to accept you because you're not like those people. You don't do those things. That comforted the Pharisee, yet Jesus said he went home not justified. The Pharisee then ends the prayer in verse 12 by stating the things he has done. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So maybe it's not your comparison with the goodness of others or the evil that you haven't done that comforts you, but it's the deeds you've done. It's the sincerity of your religion. It's the causes that you've stood for So when you ask yourself, why will God accept me into heaven? Is what brings you comfort something that you have committed yourself to? Like attending a church that preaches the Bible. Is it the fact that you only listen to Christian radio? Is it the fact that you study your Bible? Are these, in and of themselves, any reason... To have confidence before a holy God. In case you have any doubt, Scripture tells us what all of our righteous deeds are before God. And and Scripture, the images that it uses, one in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament, they're crass images, okay? 
but they're getting the point across. This is what our righteous deeds, our good works are when we try to offer them to God as the reason for Him to accept us. The first one comes in Isaiah 64, 6. It's, there's, God's Word says, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy, polluted garment. The English is pretty soft when it translates that word that's a filthy, polluted garment. What Scripture is actually talking about is it saying that our righteous deeds, those good things that we do to thinking that we are impressing God, they're just like a menstrual cloth. It's a dirty pad. The other image is in the New Testament, Philippians 3.8. Paul says, yes, everything else that I've done is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have discarded everything else. All my religion, all of my devotion before coming to Christ, I've discarded it, counting it as garbage so that I could gain Christ. And where most of the more modern translations translate that word garbage, the King James actually is more accurate when it translates it dung. Paul is saying, all of my righteous deeds are dung. They're garbage. They're trash. So imagine that you get a birthday present. And you open it up, and it's a box that has a used pad and a steaming pile. Good gift? No. It's disgusting. Absolutely disgusting. And Scripture says that's what it's like when we try to present to God our good deeds. The person who is proud of their right doctrine and even their right living is the person who is in most danger of self-deception when it comes to their own personal salvation. What religious habits, what good deeds could the thief on the cross present to Jesus as reason for his acceptance in God's kingdom? None. Yet Jesus told him, today you will be with me in paradise. Somehow God justified that thief on the cross in a moment when he had nothing to offer to God by way of a good work or a good deed. But what is most telling of this Pharisee's heart condition is what is missing from this prayer. His own assessment of his life compared to others revealed that he was fine, revealed that there was nothing wrong, that surely he had confidence to stand before God and God would approve him because he wasn't as bad as most. He was religiously devout. And in his prayer, there is not one single cry for God's help. There is not one single admission of need. 19th century pastor J.C. Ryle writes, A prayer which only contains thanksgiving and profession and asks for nothing is essentially defective. It may be suitable for an angel, but it is not suitable for a sinner. It's most probable that this Pharisee, he was aware of his sins because aren't we all aware that we've messed up, that we have some flaws somewhere? But his own sense was that his goodness made up for those wrongs, that his goodness covered those wrongs. And he touts God with the evils he's not and the goodness that he's done instead of confessing his sin before God confessing that his sin is so great and so deep that he needs God's help to remove it from him. The only sin that he could point to was the sin of other people, of that tax collector standing far off. And so J.C. Ryle also writes, he says, vagueness and generality are the great defects of most men's religion. To get out of we and our and us into I and my and me is a great step toward 
heaven. So let me ask you, it's very easy for us to be repelled by some of the big social sins that we see. You know, human traffic, human slavery. Think of things like tyrannical genocide, oppression of the poor, abortion, adultery, you know, the big sins in our society. We look at those, and, and, and yeah, we can have a, a certain hatred towards those because often those are sins that, that we haven't really dealt with, that we don't really struggle with. And so what about sins in your own life? Do you despise those sins? Do you have a hatred against those sins that you personally struggle with? What socially acceptable sins in your own life do you treat as trivial, as no big deal? The need for mercy that was absent in the Pharisees' prayer is what characterized the tax collector's prayer. Look with me at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Here is a prayer that God looks upon with favor and compassion. The Pharisee had likely noticed this tax collector at the temple because it would have been so rare for a tax collector to enter the temple. And as the text describes this man's demeanor and actions, that saying that he was standing far off, that he would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, that he was beating his breast, it's obvious that this tax collector came and he was filled with shame and he was filled with embarrassment and guilt. This man wasn't just sorry for the wrongs that he had done. He wasn't just troubled by the consequences of his sin. He despised his sin. He knew that he was a despicable man. See, the Pharisee was right to group this tax collector along with robbers and adulterers. No moral man would have ever had become a tax collector. By his profession, he was scandalous and disloyal. And this tax collector knows that there's absolutely nothing that he can bring to God to merit God's acceptance and approval. There's nothing within him that he stands on as confidence that God will approve him. He does not identify himself with the evil he's not or the good that he's done, but he identifies himself as the evil he is. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He could have listed the wrongs that he had done and asked God to forgive each one of them, but he knew that there was a deeper problem, a deeper issue. He knew that he did those wrong things because he desired to do them. He knew that there was something deep within his heart that God must change if he was to ever be declared righteous. The reason that he cheated people out of their money is because he loved money. His heart was inclined to serve himself at the cost of other people. He was a sinner, and he knew he needed God's merciful rescue. His only hope was for God to act on his behalf. You know, it's one thing to tell God, God, I'm sorry for this and this and this and this. And it's completely another thing to say, God, I'm sorry for this and this and this. And God, the reason I did those things, I confess, is because in those moments, I loved those things. I loved myself more than I loved you. God, the wrong that I've done is because I have chosen to do those things. Because I have desired to do those things. So what is your appeal before God? What brings you comfort that God will accept you into his kingdom? That he will declare you righteous. Are you comforted by the things that you do? 
Are you comforted by the things that you don't do? Or are you depending on God to do something outside of yourself that he will apply on your behalf? Jesus concludes again in verse 14a. He says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. How could God do that? How could a holy and just and a righteous God declare a sinner as holy and righteous and just? You know, this is the great dilemma that Scripture raises. How can a faithful, true, righteous, just, holy God declare those who have wronged Him, who have flaws, as righteous? We see these two men were there at the temple. And there at the temple, priests sacrificed innocent animals as an offering to atone for the people's sins. Blood had to be shed. Life had to be taken in order for the debt of sin to be canceled. It was a horrible, bloody thing, but it shows us the seriousness of sin and the high cost of being made right before God. And in only a matter of a few verses later, Luke records Jesus telling his disciples shortly after this story, in verse 31 of chapter 18, Jesus says, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place of the temple, the place where sacrifices were made. Jesus says, We are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. In verse 32, For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. At the time, the disciples, they didn't get what Jesus was saying. But hindsight is twenty twenty. Jesus was telling his disciples, We are going to Jerusalem where I will be killed as a sacrifice. Jesus of Nazareth, Son of Man, Son of God, lived a perfect, innocent life and then voluntarily laid his life down as a sacrifice for the wrongs that we have done. So that God could look upon Jesus, look upon his perfect sacrifice, accept it, and cancel our sins. There is no longer any need to offer human sacrifices because Jesus' death absorbed the full penalty of God's wrath that we deserved. The wrath that our sin ignited was averted away from us and unloaded upon Jesus on the cross. So the cross is the answer to this dilemma of how a holy and just God can declare those who are unholy righteous. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us how. This verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, comes at the end of the verse that Fred read for us at the beginning. Paul writes, For our sake, he, that's God, made him, that's Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me read that again. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. See, at the cross there's, there was a great exchange. Jesus took our flaws and offers us his flawlessness. He took our sin and gave his perfection. He took our penalty and gave us his reward. And in Jesus, we become the righteousness of God. That is how God can declare sinners as righteous. Because he has given us the true righteousness of his son. He has credited what Christ has done on our behalf, we get the credit for what only Christ deserves to be declared 
righteous. The righteous God requires of us, the righteous God requires of us cannot be gained by avoiding evil. It cannot be gained by doing religious things. The righteousness God requires is a gift he gives to those who trust and follow Jesus. Okay, so it's given, not gained. Jesus' righteousness is given, not gained. It's given, not gained. Pastor Mark Driscoll says that that is a lesson that you're not going to learn today. It's a lesson that you need to learn every day. That God's righteousness is a gift. That any confidence that we have in standing before a holy God and believing that He will accept us is not through what we can gain by our own doing, but is purely what He has given to us in Christ. We see, our pride will always think that we can do something for God to like us more. And it takes humility to understand that a right relationship with God rests upon the gift that He has given, not the things that we do. So Jesus concludes the parable, Luke 18, the end of verse 14, by saying, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. How do you assess yourself? The temptation is to pride yourself in how you are unlike others. This is true as individuals. It's true as a church. Right? There's the temptation that, that we as a church, First Baptist Eichard, can become prideful that we are not like other churches. To think that other churches are somehow less valuable, less worthy, because they don't do things the way we do things. We can hold them in contempt. As individuals, there's even a temptation for us to come here today and to leave prideful in thinking that we are not like those Pharisees. We're not like that Pharisee who's trusting in our works to merit our salvation. But God does not measure us versus them. He doesn't measure you versus him, you versus her. God measures us according to the standard of Jesus. So here's my challenge for you this week. My challenge for you is to train yourself in the way of humility. And the way to do that, one way to do that, is that whenever you encounter a jack from our earlier story, whenever you encounter someone who appears morally worse than you, when you hear of someone who's caught in some wild, atrocious, despicable sin, ask yourself, how am I like them? How am I like Jack? How am I like him? How am I like her? Because our tendency and our pride is, is to automatically think how we are unlike that person, and boy, are we glad that we're not like them. But instead, assess yourself by considering how you are like that person. If you honestly assess yourself according to God's Scripture and God's Spirit, you will realize that your flaws, your sins, are rooted in similar desires as the sin of the most wicked people. Sin, it varies by degrees, okay? More than it varies by types. We often categorize sins as, okay, well, you have those really bad sins over here. You know, you have those types of sins that are really, really bad. And boy, I'm glad that I only have these smaller sins that I struggle with. But sin goes so much deeper. It's rooted in the heart that, that it's really not an issue of different categories, of different kinds of sins. It's an issue of different degrees of sins. Take, for instance, a drug addict. Okay? Why does such a person turn to drugs? 
Is it not that there's some desire for comfort or a, a desire to feel good? Is it not coming from a desire to just drown out the stress and the turmoil of life? Is, is that not what leads people into drug addictions? And is there not within each of us also a desire to escape the pressures of life? A desire just to feel good for a moment? Is there not a desire within each of us to be accepted among a group of peers who, who behave in, in the same manner? Is there not within each of us a pull, an urge, an addiction to something? Sure, we might not express it in illegal ways, but there's still within us those same desires. Robert Murray McShane so eloquently said, the seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. The seed of every sin known to man is in my heart. So how are you like those people that you normally assess as morally less than you? By seeing our likeness more than our difference should lead us to compassion rather than contempt. Should lead us to want to help those that we see struggling with sin because we know that we needed help. And we have the great opportunity to share with them where that help and hope can be found. It's found in Jesus because he has given his life as a gift. The lesson that we must learn today, that we must learn tomorrow, and that we must learn every day is that our right standing before God is not based on what we have done, but it's based on the gift that he has given. John Calvin sums this lesson of the parable well when he writes, The only worthiness we can bring to God is our own vileness, so that his mercy may make us worthy. To despair in ourselves so that we may be comforted in him. To lower, abase ourselves so that we may be lifted up by him, to accuse ourselves so that we may be justified by him. What is your appeal? What are you resting in to be accepted by God? Have you accused yourself of the wrongs that you've done, those evil desires that you harbor within yourself to beg for God's mercy to do something on your behalf and thank Him that He has done that in Christ? Or are you resting like the Pharisee on the ways that you are not like other people and are you congratulating yourself that you have not gone down the path that so many have gone down? You see, God is not impressed with anything that you can do, right? God's not impressed by anything that you can do. God's not impressed by anything that you have done or anything that you will do. But better than, being imp- but better than impressing God is being loved by God, right? We don't have to impress God because God has loved us. And he knew we were helpless, and that's why he gave us his son and credits us with the righteousness that only Christ deserves. The tax collector left that day justified, and the Pharisee left that day unjustified. So the question is, how will you li- live, leave this place today? Let's pray. Just as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, just...
Consider what confidence you have to stand before a holy God. The good news is that you can leave today justified by Christ. You only need to stop trusting in whatever it is you're trusting in right now and instead turn and trust Jesus. Make it your new life's aim to put him first because he is everything to you. And if today you realize that you need to do that, that you've been relying upon your works, you've been relying on what you haven't done or what you have done, rather than relying upon what God has done for you, then I encourage you to express your request for God to help you through this prayer. It can be something as simple as this. I'll pray it, say it in your own words, just to yourself, to God. God, I am a sinner in need of a Savior. God, forgive me for the wrongs I've done and for the reasons I've done those wrongs. God, I believe that Jesus came, died on a cross, rose again three days later to take away the penalty for my sins. And God, I believe that in Him you will make me righteous and acceptable. Today I receive that gift and I commit my life to live for Jesus. Father, thank you for this time. I pray that we will all be in tune to your spirit and what he would have us to learn. In Christ's name, amen. I invite you to stand. And as we sing, if, if you prayed that prayer, we would love for you to make that known public. We would love for you to come up here. You can share it with me, and then I'll pray with you, and we'll share it with others. Or if you'd like to come up here and just receive more prayer, then I encourage you to come. All right, uh, for our announcements for the week, um, Tiffany has asked me uh, to ask the Sunday school teachers to please turn in your rosters uh, each week. Uh, there's, uh, she says you're just missing a few from time to time, so if y'all will, please turn those in. Also, uh, there will be no kids' praise this week uh, or next week, and that's uh, what usually meets on Wednesday nights. Um, no October hobby night uh, due to Judgment House. And on Sunday, November the 11th, uh, don't forget Operation uh, Christmas Child Shoebox Collection. Uh, flyers are available at the information desk. Uh, also, if you are in scenes three, four, five, six, and seven, uh, we will all be uh, having practice today at 5 o'clock. So we want to make... What? I'm sorry. 7 is at 4, uh, 3, 4, 5, and 6 at 5. Okay. Um, and tour guides at 5. Okay. So if you're involved in Judgment House, be here about 5 o'clock. <laughs> um, I have a confession. While I have the mic, I'm going to take the uh, opportunity to, to, to make a confession to you. Um, I've prayed to God over Judgment House, and I just want to, to be honest with you like I was honest with God, I said, God, I don't understand how you can bless Judgment House this year as I'm broken and my church is broken. And I could almost hear God smile, and he said, I will bless you because you are broken and because your church is broken. And he said, that's the simple acknowledgement of that broken. Because you see, when we acknowledge that we're broken, we admit that we're in need of a fix. And I know a great mechanic. And he says, I'll fix you if you'll just simply say, we're broken and we need you. And you know what, guys? If one person comes to, know, you know, comes to get saved, it's going to make my week worth it. You know, the angels in heaven rejoice when one turns to him. You know, I hope that our church rejoices over just one that turns to him. God won't draw someone to himself because of us this week. He will draw someone to himself in spite of us this week. With that said, uh, I want to say uh, what a great time that I've had in worship today, a wonderful message from God, and I hope that your life application group just explodes in your life. We're dismissed.